the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. We are continuing uh, on our series on a book called uh, The Kingdom. From Creation to the Millennium by a colleague of mine, Don Ennevolson. And we were finishing up uh, last chapter, um, As It Is in Heaven, a couple of things I wanted just to wrap that up with. And then we're going to dovetail over into the next chapter, which is called The Voice of the Spirit. So the last time we left off... Uh, I wanted to wrap up with a couple of things because we were talking about examples of what it looked like when Peter and Paul were would look into heaven and um, hear from God to determine what his will was in a particular situation. But we wanted to talk about, um, there are a lot of clear examples where that occurred, and we mentioned those in last week's show. But... Um, we wanted to point out that hearing from God is, I'm just going to put it in my phrase, is tricky business. And uh, it always has to be um, subjected to uh, a test, a verification. And um, I wanted to give some examples where in the New Testament there was some lack of certainty about what the Holy Spirit would want uh, Paul to do on particular cases. And um, this, we, I think we talked about the uh, entourage that was going with Paul to Bithynia. And um, while at the border, the Holy Spirit sent out a check to stop them, which they did. They obeyed the check. And they waited. But uh, during the night, a clarification through a dream came up, which clarified God's will. And um, they were supposed to go someplace else other than Bithynia. So the next day, they started out for another place called Macedonia. You can check that out in Acts uh, chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. But there's another example um, that is also found in Acts 16, verse 17. And the author says, sometimes getting it right takes a while. As Paul was moving about Philippi, a slave girl started to follow him, and she was possessed by a spirit of divination. 
that she had used to engage in fortune uh, telling, which brought her owners uh, a lot of money. And she started to cry out to the crowds as Paul was traveling uh, with his followers, and she would say in a loud voice, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, the author says on the surface, this would appear to be a confirmation of Paul's ministry, really not a, an attack by a demonic power, but the manner in which the girl continued to shout proved to be disruptive. And the scripture says, and Paul became, this is a quote now, greatly annoyed. So after several days, he turns to the girl. He spoke to the spirit that was influencing her or occupying her. And he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That's in Acts uh, chapter 16, verse 18. And the author points out, note that he did not come to this conclusion or action quickly. The girl had followed him around for, quote, many days, close quote. So even Paul occasionally took a while to figure things out as to what the will of God was in a particular situation when dealing with a circumstance right in front of you. So the author uh, starts to wrap up by saying, look, the relative difficulty that people have in hearing the voice of God does not invalidate our need to listen. If anything, it ramps up our need to listen. God does nothing without first revealing what his will is to his servants through the prophets, and that's in uh, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. And in the New Testament, Uh, revealing it to his sons and daughters, young and old, male and female, that we see in Joel chapter 2, talking about the end times. Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. So it's open to a larger group of people, uh, not just a few uh, prophets that we saw in the Old Testament. This is opening up and amplifying who is eligible to hear from God by looking into heaven. This would appear to be a standard process a biblical process for prayer. God reveals his will first to his servants. Now, his servants, using the authority that they were originally given, which is legal permission, that they were given in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 at creation as rulers of the earth, they are to speak. And actually, more precisely, they are to command the Father's will, into existence where? On the earth. That's our job. Once we have determined, and again, you know, we see Gideon with his fleeces. You know, you double check, you triple check, you make sure that you're not off on a lark of some type. Once we have determined what God's will is, then by our authority that was given to us and and. Jesus restored that authority. We can see that in uh, Luke chapter 10 when he sends out the 70. When we see that in Matthew chapter 10 when he sends out the 12. He's giving them authority, legal permission, to command the will of the Father into effect, into the here and now, right now on the earth, right here in the earth. So the author wraps up. 
clearly this kind of kingdom activity involves more than just a short daily devotional time or reading the Bible and meditating for just a few minutes in the morning. The author goes on to say, rather, it implies an active, nonstop intentionality to listen intently and to respond when the Holy Spirit's voice actually speaks. This does not imply some wild-eyed, crazy demeanor in which people walk around all day as though they're in some sort of a trance. But neither does it preclude using common sense and wisdom to plan activities and ministries. Rather, what it does do, it denotes a practiced awareness of God's presence in the here and now as one goes about the business of your normal day. Recognizing the possibility that God might speak at any time. Doesn't the scripture tell us to be ready in season and out of season? So as long as we are recognizing that the possibility of God might speak at any moment, this is something which is known in the practice of our spiritual development, our spiritual formation, our spiritual maturity as mindfulness. Mindfulness. What is your mind full of? And I just want to add something that's not in the book. The last verse in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, you know, Paul's kind of asking a rhetorical question, like, who could possibly know the mind of God? You know, like, he's ineffable, and who could know him? And then at the very last line before he ends chapter 2 of, of 1 Corinthians, he says, but, but... We have the mind of Christ. Now notice the tense of that verb. It doesn't say we had, past tense, the mind of Christ, nor does it say the future tense. We will have the mind of Christ. When Paul writes this, he's saying a reality check is we have in the present tense, the mind of Christ. Well, (laughs) what did Jesus emulate? What did he show us how to replicate? What was Jesus focused on? Who did he talk about? It's almost like, and I don't say this in a negative way at all, but it's almost like an obsession. Uh, In John chapter 4, he says, my very food can't live without food. My very food is to do the will of my father. He says to Philip, hey, if, you, if you're looking at me, you're looking at the father. What do you mean you show us the father? And in John 5, he says, look, the things that my father says for me to say, I say it. Well, that means that there was earlier conversation between Jesus as Son of Man and the Father. The things he tells me to do, I do them. And so there's this continual mindfulness of Jesus, Yeshua, 
of the presence of Father God. And, and we can actuate that. We can um, put that to work immediately by implementing. And I used to teach this in the jails uh, to the inmates. <clears throat> and I would always say, look, here's a question you can ask God if you want to practice mindfulness. And if we have the mind of Christ, try this on for size. Father, what's the very next thought that you, Father, want me to have in my mind right now in the next two seconds? 1,001, 1,002. And then you try the question again. What's the, now, okay, fine. He gives you the thought what you should have. And when I've been trying this, I'm doing experiments along this line, I find that usually I get ushered into the presence of the Father, and he starts telling me what he thinks about me. He starts describing how he feels about me. Now, it's one of those situations where you put on your your seatbelt. Because it's going to oftentimes usher you right into the throne room. I mean, that's why Jesus died. To end the separation, the rupture of our relationship between Father God and us as his children. Jesus showed up to be the bridge, the bridge of blood that we crossed. Because he, because he did pay the price And he became an expiation. He became an atonement to basically say he became the curse so that we could live lives. And what what, what did Jesus say? John 10, 10. I have come that you may have life and that you have it in abundance, more abundantly. Well, what is life? It's it's knowing. Look at John 17, 3. I, I ask this all the time. What is the significance? What is the meaning of eternal life? It's not dying and going to a place. That's what we've been taught, but that's not biblical. Let's go back to the, what the Bible says. Eternal life is defined in John seventeen three, with these words introducing the verse. Listen to this. And this is eternal life. How can that be more clear? That's how the first words of John 17, 3 begin. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. It doesn't mean know about in your, in your thinking. It means know in your heart, relationally. That they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So I, asked, I would ask the inmates uh, when I would teach this. I said, so when does eternal life, when can that be experienced? If that's the definition, knowing God relationally, do you have to wait till you die and go to a place? Or is eternal life something that we can experience in the here and now? Right now, right here, in the next two seconds. Because that's what the inmates said they could do. They could only control their thought life two seconds at a time. So I said, fine, let's do it. And let's practice this mindfulness. What's your mind full of? Well, I'll tell you what, from what Jesus said and what he 
taught and what he you know uh, did through his acts, his mind was full of the Father all of the time. He said, look, until I hear the Father say it, I don't even say it. If I don't know what he said, then I don't say anything. And what I see the Father doing, I do. So that's the power and authority that we have been given because it says very clearly that the curtain separating us from the Father has been torn asunder through through the price that Yeshua paid on the cross. And now in Hebrews, it tells us we are to come, listen, boldly before the throne of God to petition, to ask for grace. That doesn't mean forgiveness only. Read, read, read the meaning of grace in the book of Titus. That's going to be your homework. Go to the epistle of Titus and read the definition of grace. It doesn't mean only forgiveness. You'll conclude after you read that, what it means is the presence of God. And that's eternal life that we can have. We have access to it in the present tense. So isn't it interesting that the, in, the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, who can know God? That's kind of like, you know, a rhetorical kind of inquiry. And then the very next sentence, it says, but we have present tense, the mind of Christ. Wow. Try that for an experiment. Ask the Father, Father, what's the next thought you want me to have? Okay. So let's get, let's finish this chapter up. So we have to listen more and we have to have a practiced awareness of God's presence in our mind and watch how you change how you speak (laughs) because you're changing your thoughts And your words are going to reflect what's in your mind. So, for Jesus, this is the end of the chapter. For Jesus, that came through much time that was spent alone in in desolate places, alone with the Father, his mindfulness. Now, there is a caveat here um, that the author brings out. I'm just going to read it. Um, The strongest and most relevant criticism of the position which is uh, brought forth in this chapter, is the concern about putting much attention on hearing the voice of the Spirit beyond the biblical text, uh, which implies that adding to the Bible by adding additional uh, revelations apart from the closed uh, canon. The concern, according to the author, does have some validity and should not be lightly dismissed. As described earlier, human beings are very good at disguising their rebellion against the kingship of God by dressing up their own agendas in spiritual sounding language. And this is as true for those who misquote the Bible for their own personal agendas as it is for those who give preference to extra biblical voices over what's contained in the Bible. And the author says a rebellious heart will find self-justification in Scripture and also in prophetic voices or in messages from angels. And then he says also, or even in fortune cookies. They will find justification somewhere. And ultimately, God will allow them to hear spiritual voices say what they want to hear. 
Pharaoh was a, fine, a prime example, the author points out. I think what well, – I'm just going to explain that real quickly. There were ten plagues, and as we see Pharaoh keep changing his mind uh, about letting the um, Jews, the Hebrews go, uh, the, what is described in the Bible, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, the first six of those ten plagues. But notice the last four plagues um, – now, it says when he changed his mind, he, he said, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. See how it changed? First, Pharaoh was in, uh, in control of what he thought. And then at some point, there came a point where uh, Yeshua, I'm sorry, Yahweh turned him over to a reprobate mind. We see that in uh, Romans chapter 1. And so he couldn't change his heart anymore because God hardened it. He had a chance six earlier times, and then the last four times, it says God hardened his heart. So self-aggrandizement, as exemplified by Pharaoh, is limited by the inevitability of the consequences to sin, as Pharaoh experienced in his own destruction. So the author says, don't be Pharaoh. The best guard against this is to submit to the correction of other believers, as Paul points out, and as illustrated in 1 Corinthians 14, there's a whole bunch of chapters here, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, verses, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 40, and that's where Paul tells us, hey, this is how you conduct um, hearing from the voice of the Spirit when you're gathering together, and then you weigh it out, you you know, two would speak out um, at, or maybe three at the most. And then the other um, uh, people, other brothers and sisters are to judge it, guard it against what the word says. And we're going to talk about that more in the next chapter against what the logos says in the Bible. See there. So we need both. We need both the logos, the written word, but we also need the rhema, which is the spoken word. Okay. And that's, what we're talking about as it is in heaven. So each, as each one shares what they hear, others should weigh what is said. And that's how you keep on track. So we're going to kind of segue over to this next chapter, chapter 16, the voice of the spirit. The chapter opens up um, with what happened with um, Ananias and Sapphira. And the author says, how did Peter know what was in their hearts? He confronted Ananias with the truth, and he asked him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of when you were going to sell your land? And uh, the author points out, the problem wasn't holding back part of the money. That wasn't the problem. Peter added, uh, while it remained unsold, did you not remain? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Here was the problem: Ananias had the authority to determine his own actions, and nothing had dictated. Excuse me, that he either had to sell the property in the first place. This is all in Acts chapter five, or that he had to donate the entire amount of the property after he did sell it. The problem was the deception. Here's the problem. Ananias wanted people to think that he was more generous than he actually was. It was deception. 
And according to the author, the deception had consequences. And in this case, the consequence was immediate. And when he heard Peter's words, it says in verse 5 of Acts 5, when Ananias heard Peter's words, he collapsed dead. About three hours later, his wife shows up, not knowing what had ha- earlier happened to her husband. But how did Peter know this? Peter now asks her some questions. Peter asked her how much she and her husband had sold the land for. And she responded with the deceptive answer, announcing a partial amount. Peter immediately called her out, just as he had done with her husband. Quote, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? And behold, the feet of those who have have buried your husband are at the door, and they will now carry you out. Well, what happened to her? It says in verse 9 and 10, she now drops dead at Peter's feet. So whatever lessons, according to the author, might be drawn from this uh, incident with Ananias and Sapphira, one thing is obvious. Peter, the apostle in Acts chapter 5, had knowledge which were outside the normal channels of human communication and human understanding. And so he wants to talk about the voice of the Spirit. So we're going to talk about, um, after the break, what is the difference between logos and the rhema. Um, the logos is, uh, we're going to go to um, actually the definitions that are laid out by um, Kenneth Hagen. And um, they're actually used by a lot of other people. And uh, we will get into that uh, with the logos being the written word and rhema being the spoken word. And we need both. And we need to know how to balance both. And we need how to verify one uh, against the other. So, um, one thing to keep in mind. Well, I hear the music coming up for the break. And we will jump back into this um, right after the break. And I welcome you back. God bless you. And um, put your seatbelt on. It's going to be an even more... (laughs) significant revelation. God bless you. Welcome back from the break. We're uh, exploring the uh, book called The Kingdom from Creation to the Millennium by Don Enavolson. And we have just entered into the chapter 16, The Voice of the Spirit. And we're going to be talking about how do people um, do what Jesus did when communicating with the Father. Um, and what's really interesting we need to keep in mind is when you say the Lord's Prayer, we refer to this all the time. And this, it is the middle part of the prayer where you say, your kingdom come. By the way, that's not a petition. It's a command. It's a proclamation. It's a decree by somebody in authority called you, the human agent as the co-regent of, of uh, Father God. And you're just emulating what you saw Jesus teach and what he put on display as a, this is how you do the ministry. 
And when you go into uh, the middle part of the um, Lord's Prayer and you say, your kingdom come, and of course, how do we know that his order, his government is amongst us? It's wherever the kingdom is, it's because the presence of the king is. And so it says, your will be done. That's how we know. That's how we know if the kingdom of God is presence is present in, in our uh, environment. It's whether God is there in the role as king. But notice what it says. Where is this supposed to occur? Well, the next line in the Lord's Prayer is on earth. That's us. Now. The, the gospel message is not about the soon escaping church. The gospel of the kingdom is about the soon arriving and coming kingdom, government, order of God in our midst, in the here and now. And so if, if we say on earth as it is in heaven, well, Jesus spent a lot of time talking to the Father in desolate places in the night, sometimes with his apostles, sometimes by himself. But they had long conversations so that he could recharge his battery from the previous day of ministry, but also get prepared for the next day. How is it he, that he knew all the things that he knew? And that's in the last show, and I encourage you to go to the podcast um, from last week's show. We talk about the woman at the well. We talk about several other instances that people, how did Jesus know all of these things ahead of time? Well, it's because who he talked with um, as he was reaching up into heaven to find out what was the Father's will. So we are now um, in the voice of the Spirit, and we have to refine our talents, if you will. We have to refine our skill set on how do we determine what is Father God's will by looking into as it is in heaven. Obviously, in heaven, in the third heaven, God's will is uh, carried out and uh, obeyed without obstruction, without any hindrances. And that's our job is to discern what's his will on earth for our um, circumstances. So uh, the author points out, just so you know that this is not a Pentecostal thing, John Calvin, one of the reformers um, in the Great Reformation, he referred to and actually developed a theological teaching called, listen to this, the inward testimony of the Spirit. Now, that Spirit is spelled with a capital S. And I'll just do a real quick reading here. But this is John Calvin writing. But I answer, this is John Calvin writing, but I answer that the testimony of the Spirit, that's a capital S, listen, is superior to reason. I'm going to say that again, but I answer that the testimony of the Spirit is superior to reason. Just as John Calvin. For as God alone can properly bear witness to his own words, so these words will not obtain full credit in the hearts of men, here you go, until they are sealed by the inward testimony of of the Spirit. Again, capital S. The same Spirit, therefore, who spoke by the mouth of the prophets, the same Spirit who spoke by the mouth of the prophets must penetrate our hearts 
in order to convince us that they faithfully delivered the message with which they were divinely entrusted. How about another reformer? How about John Wesley talking about the voice of the Spirit? John Wesley referred to the witness of the Spirit by which he meant the inward impression on the soul, meaning the soul of of us, the human being, child of God, whereby the Spirit of God, that's a capital S, the Spirit of God immediately and directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God. Okay, now when he says witness to my spirit, that's a little s, okay? Not capitalized. And in his journal, he described this experience. Um, in the evening... John Wesley said he very unwillingly went to a meeting at Aldergate Street. And there one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. About 845, when he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So the Reformers recognized that without some activity on the part of the Holy Spirit, the Scripture itself is not recognized as being inspired. Of course, this is still not quite on par, this according to the author, with the kind of revelation that Peter experienced with Ananias and Sapphira and also with the lame beggar beggar in front of the uh, temple. But it does acknowledge that there is extra-biblical communication. And the author goes on to say, later claims by charismatics to be able to hear the voice of God are, are really not a difference in substance from the position of the reformers like John Wesley and and John Calvin, but rather only to the degree. And he goes on to say, in the modern church era, the Pentecostal movement uh, brought a renewed appreciation of all of the Holy Spirit's activities, including direct communication with believers. So Kenneth E. Hagan um, uh, provided a popular name to this and extended it to something beyond just uh, an assurance of our inner conviction of salvation. He called it the Rhema Word. So I'm just going to kind of summarize here. I don't want to get into that. But Hagen, he defined uh, logos, spelled L-O-G-O-S, as the written word of God. And the rhema, the spoken word of God. And he basically explained that we need the written word as our foundation. But we also need the spoken word, the rhema, for direction how to implement it. We have the written word to stand on, but we need the rhema, the spoken word, so that we know what to do and that we know where to go. Now, the way I summarized it uh, when I used to teach this in the jails, I would as a chaplain, I would uh, basically say the Logos as the written word functions as a map. Just like um, back in the day before we had uh, 
before we had Google Maps and you have everything on your phone, uh, we would actually get a, a map from the you know um, AAA of uh, California, <laughs> and they had gave out free maps. But sometimes there's something that we need in addition to the map. And if you are in the military and you learn map reading, well, part of the map that you learn in the military is you have to learn how to read different contours of the topography, et cetera, et cetera. And for that, um, in order to get your coordinates, you need something called a compass. If you're looking at a map and you don't know which way uh, is north, okay, you have to use another tool in order to verify what is in writing in front of you, which is the map, which I think would be a good equivalent to basically saying is the logos. It's the written word that we have in scripture. But the rhema is essential because the compass shows you the details. And I think that would be a good uh, comparison when you start to look into when is one used, when is the other, and when are they both used. So, the um, challenge for us is to verify what is the will of God. So, the author, um, Don Edivolson, says, while a closer study of the usage of both words reveals that Hagen's basic definition, it's good, doesn't explain all the nuances, but he nevertheless captured the essence of their most common usage. And he's made it understandable. The basic manner in which the Holy Spirit communicates the will of God is through the rhema. The written word is the foundation in the scripture, in the Bible, which serves as an anchor. And it also serves as a check to validate any other spoken word. So we need always the scripture to see whether the spoken word fits within the framework. The spoken word is the voice of the spirit, capital S, according to the author, which gives immediate direction to the believer for the carrying out of verification of prayer and for how to carry out his ministry. So... Moving on, Logos is, in essence, more comprehensive. It's more inclusive um, as the written word. The rhema as the spoken word, in contrast, is actually more narrow and more specific. So, rhema as a definition is an utterance. If you look at actually how it's defined, it's an utterance, a word, a saying, an expression, a statement of any kind, particularly that which is said. It also can represent an event or an object or a thing, as when Mary treasured all of these things that she received, um, pondering them in her heart that we see in Luke chapter two nineteen. But the distinction between the written word and the spoken word 
uh, recognizes that the spoken word is frequently used of direct communication by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, often in the form of highlighting specific passages of Scripture for a specific person, for us in a specific circumstance. And it's particularly important in applying the kingdom of God principles that we see in the written word. The choice of Rhema for a number of verses is significant. And he gives, um, I think, four examples here. John six sixty-three. It He says, Jesus says, that it's the spirit who gives life. Because we can't do everything by the letter of the law. We have to, if we don't have the spirit interacting with that, it becomes rote. So Jesus said, is the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken, and there is called, the, it's the plural, remata. And Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you, listen, are spirit and life. And didn't Jesus tell us that um, in John fourteen six? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. The next um, example that the author uses is Romans 10, 8. Um, but what does it say? Quote, the word rhema is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word rhema of faith that we proclaim. Another example, again, from Paul, Ephesians six seventeen, And take the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, capital S there, which is the word of God. And word there is not um, translated logos. It's translated as rhema. The fourth example that he uses is uh, Romans ten seventeen, And he says, the author says, with regard to the faith needed to speak God's will into being, it is significant that faith comes from hearing, now he's quoting Romans ten seventeen, and hearing from the when we say word of Christ. But in the Greek, notice that's not logos. It's used here in contextually as rhema. I'll read it again. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the rhema of Christ, the spoken word. For genuine faith, one needs to hear the voice of the Spirit the very thing Jesus sought during the time that he was in desolate places, extensively extensively times of prayer, praying to the Father. Now, the author points out, understandably, this distinction makes people nervous in some cases. And, And the author acknowledges there is good reason to be cautious of what he calls extra biblical messages from God. For one thing, it would be easy on the basis of what has been said thus far to actually marginalize the written scripture in the Bible and look to spiritual revelation as supreme importance. In fact, there have been many who have done so in their refusal to acknowledge God. But it's dangerous. Look what happens in Romans one twenty one. As you do that... They are given up by God to a debased and depraved mind. Check that out in Romans 1, 28. And in Ezekiel 14, uh, verses 11 through 17, 
it shows the degree to which human uh, human beings are given words from God in the form of they want of what they want to hear. So don't ever play God for a fool by um, trying to do some tricky, trickery or manipulation of God's word to get what you want. Um, there's a verse. Well, let me just go back for a minute. That Ezekiel 14, um, 11 through 17. Let me see if I have that here. Ezekiel 14, 11 through 17. This is a showstopper, and um, it makes a lot of people um, a lot more appreciative that this is something that we need to learn and be accurate on. So here we go. Ezekiel 14, 11. Okay. I'll go at verse uh, 10 of Ezekiel 14. And, um, and they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired. And uh, that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with their transgressions, but that they may be my people, and I may be their God. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it, and I will cut off its su- supply of bread and send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. And even if these three men, Noah and Daniel and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their, by their righteousness, says the Lord. Let's see here, 17. So we have two more verses. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it, and make it so desolate that no man may pass through it because of the beasts. And even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord, they would neither deliver the, neither the sons nor daughters, and only they would be delivered. Or if I bring a, soul, a sword on that land and say, sword, cut through the land and cut off the beast from it. And so this basically is saying... We need to be very, very careful because what happened in Second Kings, and let's see if I can find that example here. In Second Kings, we have a situation where King Ahab wanted to go up against a place called uh, Gil- um, Ramoth Gilead. And he wanted to hear, this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to uh, take his army and, and attack it. But he wanted to get confirmation from, from the prophets that he would be able to do it. And he brought, as he brought the prophets in, uh, there was one named Micaiah. And Micaiah at first told him, yes, he agreed with the other prophets and said, you go up there and you'll be just fine. Um, and Ahab suspected that Micaiah was playing games with him and was putting him on. And so he said, I told you to tell me what is really God's will. And so he did. Micaiah said, if you go up and you attack Ramoth Gilead, this is in uh, second, see if I can find this. No, it's in first Kings uh, 22 verse 19. Micaiah looked into heaven where he saw the armies of God scattered like sheep. And this is in first Kings twenty two seventeen. And he looked again, and then he saw the throne of God surrounded by the host of heaven. 
And so Micaiah said to him, if you go up, you will, you will be destroyed. And at that point, King Ahab didn't receive that word. Because what did he want to do? He wanted to do something contrary to the word of God, to the will of God. And he, he then criticized Micaiah and he says, see, you never speak things good of me. And um, in essence, there's a meeting that God convenes up in the throne room. And he says, I want, how do I basically give King Ahab what he wants because it's not what I want. And there's a meeting up there where various angels come up and offer their services, and one says, I will present myself as a spirit of deception to Ahab, because he doesn't want to do your will, Father. He wants to do his own. And Father God gives that angel permission to go as a lying spirit to go present himself and deception to say, okay, this is what you want. This is what you, th- you will be th- taught. or This is what you will be supposedly told by God. Yeah, go ahead and do it. And that's the same sort of thing that happened with Pharaoh that we talked about earlier. Pharaoh hardened his heart six times, changed his mind six times, and but the last four Uh, changes of mind that Pharaoh had, he was no longer changing his mind. God hardened his heart. And the reason we're spending some time with this is that we have to be so careful that we verify what it is that God wants. And you may say, well, that was in the Old Testament. Now, that wouldn't happen in modern day. Well, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2.11. And that is New Testament. And let's see if that also applies. Because what we see in the old, we often have to verify and see if it's still true in the New Testament. So I am looking here through Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. And for this reason... God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now that should sit everybody down and make everyone swallow and get very, very humble and say, let's get real with God. To learn how to discern the voice of of the Holy Spirit is tricky business, but it can be done and it needs to be done. And God has given us implementation tools as we see in in Corinthians where Paul says, this is how you do it. I think that was uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14. To test and make sure we are in the middle of in the center of Father God's will. And the reason is, is that God has given us authority to carry out his will, and and we cannot play games. We cannot take advantage of this. We have to really, really 
act as if we're walking through a minefield and go very deliberately, very, very uh, carefully and look for any possibility of saying, is our own agenda wrapped up in religious garb and saying, oh, this is the will of God? Not necessarily. Has it been subjected to the test of 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 29? Do you have brothers and sisters that you trust who know the Logos and will weigh what you're hearing from God and say, yeah, this sounds consistent. This sounds solid. We need to verify and always, always take a second look and to make sure we're in the middle of God's will. All right. We'll finish up this chapter on hearing the voice of the Spirit next week. And in the meantime... May you be richly blessed and encounter and learn God's simple truth moments. See you next time. God bless you. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.